In the first half of the book of Mark, Mark seems to be asking the same question over and over. Who is Jesus? What's interesting is a full eight chapters go by, and even though Jesus has performed incredible miracles, and even though he's taught like nobody who's ever taught before, nobody seems to really identify him for who he is. Well, here in halfway through chapter 8, all of that changes. Jesus asked his disciples, he asked them, who do men say that I am? And so they answer Jesus and they tell him the different various views. They say, some, of you, some people think that you are John the Baptist, come back to life. He says, others believe that you are the prophet Elijah. And still others believe that you're another one of the Old Testament prophets. Now, what Jesus understood and what the disciples came to understand is though even though this sounded uh, very nice and sounded like they had a high view of who Jesus was and that this was a great compliment, it was actually no compliment at all. It was not some, it was not him elevating Jesus, but rather downing Jesus because Jesus was not just another ordinary prophet. He was more than a prophet. He was the prophet. He was the priest. He was the king. Uh, They were merely pointing to Jesus. They were the pointers, but Jesus was the point. The problem is, is nobody up to this point really seems to get that. That is until Jesus then asks his disciples, he says, who do you say? That I am. In other words, Jesus is saying, I understand what everybody else believes. You understand what everybody else says about who I am. He goes, but that's not important to me. What's important to me is what you think of me, what you say, who you say that I am. And that's a question that every single one of us must ask ourselves this morning. Who do we say that Jesus Christ is? And so he asked the question, and we find out that Peter answers on behalf of the disciples, and he's the first one to get it right in the entire book. He says, you are the Christ. In other words, you are the Messiah. You are the one that all those prophets before were speaking about and pointing to. You are the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. You are the Christ, he says. And Jesus says, you know, the only way that you understand this is not because of flesh and blood. You didn't work this out in your own mind and in your own heart. God revealed this to you. So at this point, his disciples have come a long way. These guys have grown immensely. They've come to the point where now they finally, after all this time, see who Jesus is. They see him as the Messiah. But the problem is they're only halfway there, only halfway home. They know that Jesus is the Messiah, but now they have to understand what kind of Messiah he is. They have to understand what Jesus' purpose is. They know who he is. Now they need to come to understand what his purpose was. And so in this passage before us this morning, he's going to do just that. He's going to give us two things that he's going to lay out and he's going to explain. The first thing he'll explain is his messiahship, what kind of messiah he is. And then the second thing he's going to do is explain yours and my discipleship in light of That Messiah, how is it that we ought to live in light of the type of Messiah that he is? And so two things we're going to look at this morning. So first of all, let's look at this. Jesus explains his Messiahship beginning in verses 31 and 32. Notice, follow along in the word, if you would. He says, and he began to teach. Now, that phrase, just so that you know, it kind of loses something in the English. But in the original language, in the Greek, it suggests a very difficult task that Jesus has now to try to somehow get through the hard 
heads and hard hearts of his disciple to really understand the purpose of why he has come. So he's going to teach them very clearly, as simply as he possibly can. There's, there's not going to be any more secrets. There's not going to be any more hiding of the truths. Uh, he, he's not going to be speaking in, in parables to, to confuse them or to stretch them. The Bible says he's going to teach them what kind of Messiah he is plainly. And so from there, the word of God says, he, he, he tells them, he teaches them two specific things about his Messiahship. He says the first thing is this, is that the Messiah, he being the Messiah, must suffer. He being the Messiah must suffer. Now, this is what we need to understand, is that when we think about these disciples, this was radically different than anything that they had ever heard before. This was something that they had never been taught. As, as good little uh, Jewish boys growing up, having good Jewish parents, they would have taught them uh, consistently about the fact that the Messiah was soon going to come. If his parents would have held to the teaching of what they were commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is what it would have looked like when they woke up in the morning. They'd come in and they'd begin to quote scripture and they'd say, today might be the day that the Messiah comes. They'd get up, they'd be eating their fruity pebbles, and they would say, as you eat, just remember, the Messiah may come at any time. Then they would get up and go about their way and work through the day, and as they did, and as they were going about the way, they would say, hey, listen, just remember, the, disciple, uh, the, the Messiah is coming. Then they'd go home after a long day, and they'd be about to go to sleep, and they'd stretch, and they'd get in their PJs, and right before they got in bed, their parents would say, hey, listen, get some sleep, tomorrow might be the day that the Messiah comes. So all through their life, they were geared with great anticipation of knowing that one day the promised Messiah could come and he could come at any moment. So they were constantly looking for him. And what did they believe that this coming Messiah would do? Well, they believed that he would come and he would conquer their enemies. Physically, that they would conquer their enemies. That he would be like King David. Great King David, what made him great? The fact that he lost battles? No, the fact that he won battles, right? He was a great military leader. So they believed another one like King David would come again and he would set his people free from the bondage they were under and in this context underneath the Roman rule. They were being oppressed by the Romans. So they believed, hey, listen, the Messiah needs to come so that we can get out from underneath this great oppressive arm of the Roman Empire. And so this is what they were looking to. But now, Jesus comes and he turns their world completely upside down. And he teaches them something radically different than anything that they've ever heard and anything that they've ever learned. He says, listen, you think that the Messiah is going to come to inflict suffering, but I'm telling you, as the Messiah, I'm not here to inflict suffering. I'm here to be afflicted by suffering. I'm not going to cause others to suffer. I myself will suffer. Now, if that's not bad enough, he teaches them something else. He says, not only will the Messiah suffer, which is beyond any kind of idea or anything they've ever heard before, he says, but they, he goes, I, the Messiah, will suffer at the hands of my own people. And not only by his own people, but by the religious elite. The Bible says, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, these three groups of people made up what was known as the Sanhedrin, which was the greatest authority within Jewish culture, the, the religious leaders of that particular day. And he, so what he's saying is, hey, listen, the Messiah, the promised Messiah is going to come and he's going to suffer, but he's not going to suffer at the hands of his enemies. He's going to suffer at the hands of the brightest, of the smartest, 
of the most well-educated, not of the dredges of society, not of the worst of the worst, but of the best of the best. Those are the ones who are going to kill Jesus. Those are the ones who are going to cause him to ultimately suffer. He goes, not the worst part of a humanity, but the best part of humanity. And his death wouldn't be the result of some out-of-control mob experiencing a momentary lapse of judgment, but rather through careful deliberation and meticulous planning on behalf of the religious leaders of the Jews. It's through that that he's ultimately going to be killed. Now understand, try to get into your minds of the Jewish people. They couldn't receive this. They couldn't understand it. They didn't have a category to even place and put or to be able to work through what Jesus was ultimately telling them. It was, it was preposterous what Jesus was proposing. And so they come to the point where they can't stand it anymore. Have you ever, have you ever been there? Somebody's teaching untruth and you're like, whoa, whoa, well, that's enough. Well, this is what Peter does. And the Bible says he stands up before Jesus and he says, and Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. You can almost kind of picture this, can't you? Kind of with our regenerate minds or, or, or newly regenerated minds. He, t- Jesus, Jesus, hold on one second. Excuse me, fellas, just for a second. Jesus, come here, puts his arms around Jesus, says, hey, let's walk over this way just a minute. Jesus, you know, you and I, we're like this, right? Right? We, we see eye to eye. You say you're the Messiah. I know you're the Messiah. We get that. He goes, but you've got this whole thing wrong, man. He goes, the Messiah is not supposed to be suffering. The Messiah is supposed to come and he's supposed to be dishing out suffering. You've got this whole thing wrong. And if you don't get this right and turn this thing around, you're going to lose some credibility as the Messiah because nobody has ever taught that the coming Messiah would ever suffer. So you need to kind of correct your course. And the Bible even says that he began to rebuke Jesus. Now, that's probably not a good thing to do. Um, Jesus then, in turn, has something to say about this in verse 33. It says, Jesus then responds, and he says, but turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter. Now, stop there just for a moment. That same word, rebuked there, is the same word that was used for for Peter rebuking Jesus and Jesus now rebuking Peter. Same word, but it's also the same word that Mark uses in describing Jesus rebuking the demons throughout the rest of the book. So, in essence, catch this. This is how much Peter hates what Jesus is saying. In essence, what he's saying is by rebuking him in that way, he's saying, Jesus, this new view of the Messiah that you're teaching, he goes, is demonic. This is not the will of God. This is not what God's word said. And here's the, here's the sad part. He needs to be rebuked then by Jesus. Why? Because without Peter even knowing it, Peter is now ultimately going against the will of God and acting demonically by suggesting that it is not God's plan for the Messiah to ultimately suffer. So what Jesus does is he rebukes him, and then what he does is this, and then he does a little bit more uh, there. What he he says to Jesus, he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, he's not trying to be cruel to Satan, but what he's doing, or to Satan, he's not being trying to be cruel to Peter, but what he's doing is he's teaching us something here. These are almost the same exact words that he spoke back in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10 while he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Almost the exact Greek words there, just a little bit different. And remember the third temptation that the devil gave Jesus? He says, if you would just bow down and worship me, I'll give you the entire world. And Jesus, the temptation was there was to be able to take the easy way out. To be able to deny God's way of redeeming the world 
in receiving the title deed of the world and owning the world through his death and taking the easy path out. All he would have to do is bow and it would be given to him. But Jesus rejects it by saying, get behind me, get away from me, Satan. And now, guess what? Without Peter even knowing it, he's tempting Jesus to do the same exact thing. He's tempting him to take the easy way out and not to submit to God's way, which was that the Messiah must ultimately die. He must ultimately suffer. That was God's plan. This was not Jesus' plan going awry. This was the plan from the beginning. And so why was it then that the disciples had a hard time really grasping the suffering Messiah idea other than it's never been taught that way? Well, Jesus says it in the very next line. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on, but on the things of man. See, what we often do, it's, it's human nature for us to think, just like them, that the worst thing that can happen to us is here in this world. That our greatest need, they would have thought that their greatest need during their time was to be delivered from the oppressive nature and arm of the Roman Empire. And if they could just get out from underneath that, then life would truly be living. And the problem was they were completely overestimating their suffering here and completely underestimating the suffering which was to come. What they failed to see was that their greatest need was not to escape the wrath of the Romans, but listen to this, but to escape the coming wrath of God. They failed to see that they had rebelled, willfully rebelled against God and sinned against God, their creator, who created him, them to glorify him in all things, but instead they became a God unto themselves and did what was right in their own eyes. And the Bible teaches us when we do that, which we all have, the consequence of that is death. God must judge a rebellious people. And so this sounds awful. This sounds terrible. Why must he die so that we can live? God has to judge sin. He has to judge somebody for that sin. The wrath of God has to be appeased. So where does it fall? Either on you or on his son. So he sends his son who's born of a virgin, which means that he was not born in sin. He lives a perfect life, unlike what you and I are incapable of doing. We break God's law. He fulfilled all of God's law. He obeyed it perfectly. And then he dies on the cross. Why does he die on the cross? For sin, yes, but for his, no. For yours and for mine. And while he hung on the cross, the wrath of God that was meant for you and I poured out. And the world turned dark and it shook. And God's anger was bellowing out on his son. And then it was satisfied. And Jesus says, it is finished to tell us It's paid in full. Your sin debt is ultimately paid in full is what Jesus says. And because of that, because of that, you and I, if we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we can be saved. We can be right with God. But that was God's plan all the way together. So notice this. Here's the key. Don't miss this because we're going to move on with this. In order to win, Jesus had to lose. That's the scandal of the cross. That's the scandal. That's what's so scandalous about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews in folly to the Greek. Why a stumbling block to the Jews? They never understood or thought that the coming Messiah would ever suffer. He would only inflict suffering on other people. So to hear that God would save the world through the Messiah's suffering, that was a stumbling block to them. They just couldn't get over it. This couldn't be the Messiah. And it was foolishness for the Gentiles. Stop and think about that. Whoever heard of winning by losing? I mean, that's, that's, that's what they do. Like with, when my son was going up through, look, when I was in little t-ball, remember that? The only way that you got a trophy is if you won. Now what do you do? Your, your kid, they, they, can't, they can't throw the ball. They run the wrong way around the bases. They lose every game. What do you do? Here's your trophy. Here's your trophy. You're a winner. Yes? You understand what I'm saying? Is, is that what Jesus... Can you imagine a coach doing this? All right, for, for Florida, Georgia, Florida State, whoever you are, or, you know, or, or you know, Palm Beach Atlantic College, Sailfish, you know... You might be, you wish, you wish, you wish you were a fish, right? That's where I went to college, undergrad, right? You might want to be a fish. But the idea there is this. What if the coach sits there and says, guys, I've got a plan. We're going to win by losing. We're going to lose every game this year. And once we do, we will have victory. Yes? How long is he going to last? But understand, this is the same thing Jesus is saying. This is what's so unbelievable about what Jesus is saying. He's like, guys, listen, we're going to win by losing. And that's what happened. We win, we're saved, and we're able to be born again because Jesus lost on the cross. But he won. What's the evidence of winning? The resurrection. Jesus was in the tomb. He died for sins, but on the third day he rose again. Why did he rise again? In his rising from the dead, it demonstrates indeed that God's wrath towards us was satisfied. And as he was made alive, we now can be made alive in Christ and have eternal life. Praise God. That's why we're rejoicing. That's what's so wonderful about today and the resurrection. That is his messiahship explained by Jesus. But then he immediately turns to explaining your and my discipleship. Now notice in verse 34. It says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now I want you to understand this in context. He goes immediately from explaining his messiahship to our discipleship for a reason. Because the way of the discipleship, or the way of his messiahship, the way that he achieves, the way that he loses, or he wins by losing, he goes, is going to be the same exact way for the believer in Jesus Christ. The way of suffering for the Messiah is going to be, please hear me, is going to be the way of suffering for the disciple of Jesus Christ. This is true not only in this text, but throughout Scripture. We see it in John chapter 15 and verse 20. There Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Acts chapter 9 and verse 16. Jesus said to Paul, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. Strengthening the souls of his disciples, 
encouraging them to continue in faith in saying, note this, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The suffering was not just the way of the Messiah, it was the way of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, even though that permeates Scripture, saturates it from beginning to end, there are people that just don't like to accept this kind of idea. In fact, they come to Jesus to escape suffering, right? So what they'll do is bad marriage, marriage problems, money problems, job problems, physical problems, something wrong, rebellious kids problems. What do we need? We've tried everything. Let's try Jesus. Maybe Jesus can help and Jesus will do what? Ultimately take away our suffering. That is why you see so many, some quickly embrace, come, they spring up, they're excited about this Jesus thing with the hopes that all suffering will be taken out of their life only to find out that the suffering's not removed. And what do they do? They jettison their faith. They walk and they come somewhere else. They leave and they say, Jesus didn't work. I tried Jesus. I tried this religious thing. Now, listen, can we all admit that God, for many of us, used difficulties in life to get our attention in life, but not to show us that those physical problems were our greatest problems, but to show us that we had an even greater problem. It was a sin problem and the righteous judgment of God storing up against us for the day of judgment that would ultimately come. So we understand that. It's so bad today that not only is that our natural inclination to think that Jesus is going to help us to escape all suffering here on this earth, that the church has now embraced a theology not of suffering, which is consistent with the word of God, but a theology of prosperity. It's called the prosperity gospel. And it's basically this, Jesus suffered so that we no longer will have to suffer. And here's the danger of it. The dangerous teachings are not those that are evidently wrong and clearly wrong, but those that have a little bit of truth in them. And here's the danger of that teaching. The danger is, yes, Jesus did suffer so that we would not have to, underneath the righteous judgment of God. But it is never a promise that we will escape, guess what, suffering in this earth. And so what they teach is this. Listen, he suffered it all. Because he suffered it all, even here on earth, we shouldn't have to suffer anymore. If you just have enough faith, if you'll just muster enough faith, then nothing will go wrong. And if it does, you'll be able to bail yourself out because of all the faith that you ultimately have. The problem is, church, this is just simply not the teaching of the Word of God. It's not what discipleship looks like. And the disciples of Jesus Christ are not exempt from hardship and pain. Believers in Jesus Christ are not exempt from cancer. They lose jobs. They can lose their homes. They can lose a spouse. Believers in Jesus Christ can struggle with making the payments of their bills. They can struggle with putting food on the table. They can struggle with having enough money to have clothes to wear and to provide for their family. In fact, let me say this, not only are they not exempt from suffering, but as becoming a believer, the Bible teaches that they will experience a whole nother world of suffering that the rest of a lost and dying world knows nothing of. When you look at the example of the 12 disciples, 10 of the 12 suffered martyrdom. They died for their faith. Only Judas, who took his own life, and, and John, who basically was, was, uh, was um, sent out onto the island of Patmos, all the other ones, their lives were taken. They suffered greatly for the gospel's sake. 
And so some, some will say even today, well, that was, that was for them back then. It's not for us today, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Did you notice the context there? After Jesus teaches about his Messiahship, of what he would have to do and die and suffer, he then calls the whole crowd. The Bible says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, he says, listen, for every person who becomes a disciple of Christ, the way is the same way as the Savior. It's a way of struggle and suffering. Now, listen what Jesus says next. Jesus said, if anyone, here, here, here he is, he wants us to know, he says, if anyone would come after me. That phrase is, hey, if anyone wants to uh, attach themselves to me, if anybody wants to hook, hook their wagon to mine, if anyone, here, let me say it very plainly, if anyone wants to be a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christian, this is what he must do. Not ought, not think, not maybe, this is what he must do to be my disciple. Then he begins to lay it out. Three things very quickly. First of all, he says he must deny himself. What does that mean, deny yourself? Does that mean push the plate of food away? Does that mean simply live month? We're going to somehow earn our salvation? No, is isn't what it means at all. He says the first thing is you have to do is you have to deny yourself. What is it? Your sinful self. You have to deny the sinful inclination in your heart to rule and to reign over your own life. You have to deny the fact and deny the sinful compulsion within yourself to place yourself at the, the, uh, on the throne of your heart and to determine what is right and wrong for your own life. He says you must now deny living for your own selfish gain and for your own selfish purposes. Instead, what you must do is you must reject it all, and then in faith, what must you do? Submit yourself fully to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what to deny yourself is. To deny yourself as God, and now acknowledge him as God, and let him rule supreme over you. No longer trusting in yourself, but now trusting in him. You must deny yourself. Secondly, you must pick up your cross. Oh, for some of us, how culture has our culture has diminished the meaning of this well every morning i pick up my cross brother mike it's on the jewelry stand there it's in nice gold my grandpappy gave it to me i love it i wear my cross everywhere that i go for some people it's nothing more than a piece of jewelry for some people it's nothing more than a religious icon or a symbol that signifies a certain kind of religion or belief system or even, even identify a church building. You may have seen our teeny little cross on the steeple. People are like, it's so small. Are you embarrassed of the cross? No. Somebody just made a mistake, okay? And we didn't have enough money to be able to replace it. It's okay. But here's why we're not so worried about that. Because Jesus says we must pick up our cross. For the people in whom Mark was writing, this would have been radically different than the way that we receive it. Because the cross in this particular day was an instrument not of jewelry or of identification, but it was an instrument of fear and death. The Romans used it to be able to keep the people suppressed and in line out of fear. In 71 BC, the Roman governor under Crassus crucified a slave rebel, you've probably seen the movie, named Spartacus, and 6,000 of his men on crosses along the Appian Way. While this book itself was being written to, Mark was writing this book, it is believed that Nero was the one who was ruling there in Rome. 
And Nero became vengeful and angry because there was a fire that broke out, decimating huge portions of Rome. And they had to have a scapegoat, so they chose the believers in Jesus Christ. And so he began to teach them, say, I'll teach you to set fire. And he would roll them in pitch and place them up on a cross. And then they would burn them at night as he entertained his guest out at his garden. But it was not only for the believers, really the cross was meant for the common criminal. The common criminal, whether they were a thief or whether they were a murderer or whatever, they would be forced to carry their cross to the place of execution. But here's the big difference between the criminal and what Jesus is calling the believer to do. The criminal is beaten and forced to carry his cross, even though he doesn't want to carry, he's being made to. He says, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you must not only deny yourself, you must pick up your cross willfully. In other words, you must willfully be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. You must sit there and say, I know to follow Christ means suffering, whether it's persecution, whether it's being made fun of, whether it's me denying myself and not getting certain things in life. But you know what? It's not something that I'll fret over. It's something that I willfully do. I pick up my cross daily. Third thing, he says to continue to follow and obey Jesus. This is what we have so many times of so many people that we meet in Nassau County. Hey, are you saved? Yes, I asked Jesus into the God-sized hole of my heart when I was a little kid. They wouldn't allow me to eat the hot dog unless I accepted Jesus, so I accepted Jesus, and then I was told that everything with me would forever be okay. Well, have you lived for Jesus? No, not really. Have you pursued him? Are you living for him? Are you learning about him? Are you serving him with your life? Is he your all in all? No, but I remember praying a prayer, so I'm good. It's not the picture of salvation. What the Bible teaches, the Bible does not teach once saved, always saved, even though we do believe if God truly saves you, he will, he will hold on to you until the day of redemption. He will, he will hold on to you until the next life. But here's what I want you to understand. The only way we know we're saved is to persevere. It's what the church calls the perseverance of the saints. The way that we know that we are saved is not only because we believe rightly, but the demonstration that we believe rightly is we continue to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean that we don't mess up. It doesn't mean that we don't fall and sometimes even fall away for God for a period of time. But the idea is the only confidence that we have is that we continue to follow and obey Jesus until we die or until he comes. Now this is what it looks like, according to Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. As radical as it would have been for the Jewish people to imagine a suffering Messiah, it would have been as equally as difficult and repulsive to think that they, as disciples, would have to suffer as well. But you know what Jesus is saying? In essence, what he is telling them is he's telling them the same way, my same way is your way. I win by losing. And guess what? You win by losing. You must deny yourself, pick up the cross, and follow me. Look at verse 35. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is what he says. He says, If you want to go ahead and live for this life here and now, live for yourself, 
pursue and do all that you want in your eyes to live for your happiness, to live for your own well-being, and that's the pursuit of your whole life. If you do that, if you gain that, you'll lose your soul. He says, but if you lose by dying to self, by dying to your sinful wants and desires and not pursue your desires but the desires of God, he says, you will gain eternal life. He's not saying, listen, that you can earn your salvation by denying yourself. He's evidencing true saving faith that says only Jesus can save and I will hold and cling to Jesus all my life no matter what the consequence, no matter what the suffering, no matter what the pain. Are you tracking with me? And this is, listen, this is always the way that it is with Jesus. It's always, we always win by losing. You got that, right? He says, hey, he goes, if you want to be first in God's kingdom, be the servant of all. You want to be first, be last. If somebody forces you to go one mile with them, and you know what he says? Willfully and gladly go with them too. He says, love your enemies and pray for those that spitefully persecute. This is always the way that it is with Jesus. Now get this. This is what believers all the time will say to me. Brother Mike, you're telling me that to be obedient to God, I have to do this, but this will bring suffering. Certainly Jesus won't want me to suffer and to be unhappy. Yes. I'm not saying that Jesus' ultimate desire is for you to be unhappy, but what I'm saying to you is this. The call to be a disciple is to make a decision to follow Jesus. You will suffer because of it, and the demonstration that God has saved you is that you're willing to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Does that make any sense? Because it either makes no sense, or maybe we're shocked a little bit this morning. Well, Man, that's not what I signed up for this morning. That's not why I came. I was expensing Easter bunny illustrations. What's going on here? You're talking about suffering. This is how Jesus lays it out. He knows at this particular point, he says, he says now Jesus knows that what he is saying is radical and it might be some who are think the cost of following Jesus is way too high. But here he begins to reason with them. Listen to what he says. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He says, listen, what if you get everything you want? You know that job that you keep pursuing? Man, that retirement that you're looking for to be able to pursue, to be able to grasp. He says, you know, you, you know that, that, that girl that you want, that wife that you want, or that man that you want, or that car? And these are the things you're living for. And the home that you're seeking, your whole life is revolved around all of this. He says, what good is it is if you get all of that, all the accolades, live a long life for 90 years, only that the moment that you die, you lose it all and you lose your soul as well. What good is that? To live for 80 years and have everything and then live for an eternity with nothing? Secondly, he says, for what can a man give in return for his soul? In other words, he's saying, if you lose out something in this world, you will gain it 10 times in the next. He says, but if you lose your soul here, how will that soul ever be regained? The answer, it won't. Third thing he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with with the holy angels. Now notice this, the idea of being ashamed here it's not like you're like, I don't want to say anything about Jesus or I'm afraid somebody's going to say something. Here, here's what it means to be ashamed. It means that the person is so proud, he's so impressed, 
He's so infatuated with himself that he wants nothing else to do with Jesus because he's too involved in his own life pursuing his own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, if that is your pursuit in life, he says, if you want nothing to do with me here, I will have nothing to do with you there. Jesus' Messiahship. He came to die on a cross, to lose, to win by losing. He had to be buried in the cross to die for our sins. And for you and I, we must die to win. We must lose to win. How? By repenting. That's what I've just described with you. By sitting there and saying, God, I am a sinner. I have sinned against you. I am worthy of death. I am worthy of the judgment of God. I know that that's what my future should be. But I know by faith that your son died on the cross in my place to pay for my sin debt. And I don't trust myself to be a good person to be forgiven. But because of the goodness that you extended to me towards your son, Jesus Christ. And the demonstration that a person knows that. And I'm not talking about intellectually. Which so many of you know. But I'm talking about know as in you have experienced at the core of your heart. Is that you are willing to live for Jesus no matter what. What? The cost. That's the evidence of your salvation. It's not the way that you're saved, but it's the evidence that God has saved your soul. Are you saved this morning? Are you saved? My fear is this, is that so many are so unbelievably blinded by their religiosity and their easy believism that they are completely and utterly lost because there's no demonstration that God has converted them, changed them from the inside out. When God saves you, he gives you a new heart. He gives you new desires. He gives you new pursuits. And apart from those, there, are, there is no true salvation. Let me ask you a question. Jesus won by losing. This morning, will you win by losing? yourself to gain Christ. Jesus, I love you. I praise you. I thank you for this morning.